This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everyone uh, in the room and uh, joining us online. Uh, I'm Gavin Kelly. I'm the chair of the Resolution Foundation. A warm welcome to you all. Um, this morning, we're talking about risk reduction. Uh, and in particular, we're going to look at a chunky proposal for creating a system of earnings insurance in the UK. Uh, now, as part of that, we're going to be interrogating and challenging an economic belief, a conviction that has been around uh, basically all my adult life. And that is that the UK has a very, very flexible and dynamic jobs market. And that a central part of that flexibility and dynamism is having very low levels of income insurance uh, if you lose your job, and also a very strong push to make you take the first job uh, that comes up if you are, are claiming benefits. Um, and that, that sort of, and I'm, and I'm saying it very simply, it's more complicated, but that central sort of belief is, has been shared in different ways by both the main parties for quite a long time. So we're going to examine that, we're going to interrogate it, we're going to, then we're going to challenge it, and we're going to propose a slightly different way of thinking about the relationship between social security and labour market performance, um, and we're going to set that out. So that's kind of the, the heart of what we're going to do. It's also timely that we're doing this. I noticed this morning, and you may have too if, you're, uh, if, if you follow these things keenly, that it's the 40th anniversary of the British Social Attitude Survey today. Um, and they've just published their latest, their 40th report, and it continues to show a really striking shift in public attitudes towards both poverty and the payment of social security benefits um, over the last decade, a really profound shift. Um, so uh, that was well-timed, if completely accidental. Uh, so that's a bit of context. And the other thing I wanted to say at the start about this morning's discussion is that we're going to try and do two things which we often don't do enough of in this country. One is we're going to look to another country uh, and try and learn from it, uh, because too often we just are very narrow in our, in our kind of outlook. So we're going to look uh, to Denmark, which we're going to hear lots about. And secondly, we're not just going to have a moan, uh, which often happens about the way things are. We're going to make a concrete proposal for doing something differently, which you can look at, agree with, disagree with, challenge, whatever, but we're going to put something on the table. Um, I should say right now that this event and this report is a part of the Economy 2030 inquiry that we are hosting here at the Resolution Foundation jointly with our friends at the London School of Economics, who are represented here today. Um, and that whole process is being generously funded uh, by the Nuffield Foundation, for whom we are always eternally grateful. So thank you. And I believe this is the, in fact I'm told, this is the 44th report. Uh, that we're publishing today as part of that process. Um, you'll all be tested on the other 43 when you leave. Um, and that process, which has been uh, consuming our organisation for the last few years, as well as the LSE, is coming towards an end. The final report of this whole thing, which looks to the future of the British economy over the longer term, and indeed wider social policy, and tries to set out a, a path for how we could do things better. Uh, that final report is coming out on the 4th of December. Uh, you will all be invited, please do come along and put that in your diary. Um, and it is also worth saying that this discussion on unemployment insurance, basically earnings insurance, is part of a wider piece on social security, which we publish various things on, on the future of human capital, particularly for those on 
uh, low wages, and an employment rights, worker rights. And they kind of form a jigsaw together. So this is one part of the jigsaw, not the whole piece. Okay, uh, so that is enough from me to get us going. I should say that we will be using Slido, like we always do. We would like your questions. Please uh, put them online. And um, we also will be having a hashtag, which I believe is, what's it, risk sharing? I've lost it. Someone will, someone will tell me. It's risk sharing, I think it is. Uh, but, but you'll find it online too. Uh, and that is enough from me. Uh, Louise is going to, Louise, I'm going to just mention the speakers. Louise Murphy is our first speaker. Louise is an economist at the Resolution Foundation and does uh, leads lots of our work on welfare and the labour market. So we'll hear from Louise first. And then we're going to hear, hear from Anna Ilso, who is an associate professor at Copenhagen University, where she writes widely on Danish labour market, industrial relations, and crucially has written a fantastic report for the Resolution Foundation 2030 inquiry, which I think copies of which are, should be on the front desk and are on our website, which is great. So we're going to hear a summary of that. Thank you for coming, coming all the way over, Anna. And then we're going to hear from Kitty Stewart, uh, who is Associate Professor of Social Policy at the LSE and works widely on Social Security. Um, and then we're going to hear lastly from Devin Galani, who is the Director and Founder of Policy and Practice, which is an organisation which does great work on the kind of front line of welfare delivery. That's a fair summary. Uh, so we're really delighted to have all of you here. It really is a fantastic panel um, who know an awful lot about the topic. Uh, and the hashtag is indeed risk reduction. I've got that right now. Okay, over to you, Louise. Great, thanks very much, Gavin. And I'd like to start by thanking my colleagues here at the Resolution Foundation, particularly Mike Brewer, my co-author, for their help with this report. So as Gavin said, there are some pretty strong narratives around the state of the UK economy, including this idea that we have a labour market that is both insecure but highly dynamic. The first of these, the insecurity, is certainly true and well-evidenced. We hear a lot about the rise of zero-hours contracts, for example, and especially since the COVID pandemic, the spotlight has been shone on the woeful levels of sick pay that particularly low earners have to rely on. But this argument that this insecurity is a positive or necessary part of having a dynamic and flexible labour market doesn't quite follow. In fact, in the UK, what we've seen is labour market dynamism decline, certainly since the financial crisis. And this goes hand in hand with some wider problems of poor productivity growth. For example, when we look at measures like job mobility, the reallocation of workers between firms, and when we think about the poor matching that exists, for example, among women with children who often end up in jobs that are not well suited to their skills, it's clear that there are problems to be solved. Now this topic of declining dynamism is something that my colleagues will return to when they launch a report on Monday, so definitely tune in to hear more about that. So it's not something that I'll focus on in too much more detail today. But what I will do is go on to think a bit more about this idea of insecurity. And in its most basic sense, the UK labour market is insecure because the safety net that people fall back on if things don't quite work out is very low. The basic rate of unemployment benefit, which for most people at the moment is contributory job seekers allowance, is worth just 14% of average earnings. And what we can see in the, the red line on this chart 
is that the value of these benefits has both been falling over time from over 30% of average earnings in the 1960s, but has also been lagging behind other payments, notably the state pension, which due to the design of the triple lock has been better able to keep up with earnings. But today, as Gavin alluded to, we're focusing a bit more specifically on one type of insecurity, and that's the job, the, the income shock that people face when they experience job loss. What we can <coughs> see in this chart, if we look at the, the blue bars, which highlight the, the, the income shock faced by average earners across the income distribution, is that it's those specifically on middle and higher incomes who face the biggest income reduction in the event of unemployment. By looking near the bottom of the chart, we can see that average workers near the top of the distribution um, see their income fall by over half if they move from employment into unemployment. And this largely relates to the design of our social security system in that um, we have flat rate unemployment benefits so that someone moving from a minimum wage job or from a very highly paying job both rely on contributory job seekers allowance worth just £85 a week. So how might we tackle these problems of declining dynamism and high insecurity? I think the first thing that's worth saying is that these are big problems that have been around um, for, you know, for, for decades and we're not suggesting that there's a single bullet that can tackle them. Um, but what we are seeing, and as Gavin mentioned, we're seeing this paper as being part of our wider Economy 2030 strategy, um, where we set out a plausible um, set of policy proposals that might allow a government to tackle these big issues. That would involve, for example, focusing on worker rights and improving minimum standards, like improving sick pay or maternity pay. These are, of course, important in their own right, but may also help increase dynamism Put simply, a low-paid worker might feel better able to move job if they know that these standards are consistent throughout the economy and not just dependent on their, their employer's attitudes. Secondly, again, as Gavin mentioned, it's important to see this paper as part of a bigger picture of um, social security reform. It will be important to increase the basic rate of benefit so that all families who rely on social security and not just those who experience unemployment receive an adequate income. That will include, for example, uprating benefits in line with inflation and making some targeted policy reforms. It will also involve some changes to our um, policies around training and human capital, <coughs> again focusing on um, uh, allowing those on lower incomes to have access to the training that will allow them to progress in their career and find higher paying jobs. But what we'll focus on for the remainder today is just one part of this overall toolkit, and that's the case for creating a more generous unemployment insurance system so that workers are protected in the event of job loss. And why do we think this is a plausible or sensible solution? Well, put simply, by moving to a system of more generous unemployment insurance, we would allow workers to find the right job if they become unemployed. Currently, we know that workers are sensibly quite risk averse when it comes to making employment moves or thinking about changes to their career because they have the knowledge that if things went wrong, there's not much to fall back on. 
For example, when we held some focus groups last year, we heard this loud and clear, especially from those on middle to higher incomes, who spoke very openly about being cautious, about taking risks, because they had to act in a way that would um, you know, keep money coming in and keep the bills being paid. But this doesn't have to be the case. We know from looking internationally um, at countries that do have more generous unemployment insurance systems that unemployed workers, when able to receive a, a more generous payment, can spend a bit longer finding a job that's right for them. These jobs are ones which tend to have higher wages, which is obviously good for that individual, that they can move into a higher paying job. But they, this also benefits the economy more, more widely by matching workers to, to more productive jobs. So having made the case that unemployment insurance is something that we think is important, we now dig into the detail of how we might design a scheme that both protects workers and helps the economy. The first thing to be clear about is that we propose scrapping the current kind of closest thing we have at the moment to unemployment insurance, which is contribution-based job seekers allowance. We think this is important for a few reasons. Notably, although the contributory job seekers allowance used to be a, a big and important part of the benefit system, that's been decreasing over time and recognition and knowledge of, of contributory job seekers allowances is low. That's been particularly true in recent years with the rollout and continued um, high awareness of universal credit. But there are more fundamental reasons why claims for job seekers allowance and knowledge of it are low. It is very complicated eligibility criteria based on workers' national insurance contributions over the past two tax years, meaning many unemployed workers just don't know whether or not they would qualify. For middle and higher earners, as I mentioned before, the fact that these payments are flat rate means many just don't think it's worth their time making a claim. They've gone from a, a well-paying job they think, you know, is it worth my time making a, a claim for a payment of just £85 a week? But on the flip side, many lower earners or those from low-income families also don't feel like there's a, a benefit of claiming contributory GSA, since for those households in receipt of means-tested benefits like universal credit, there's often no financial benefit to making a claim for contributory GSA. That's because in the design of universal credit, these payments are deducted pound for pound, meaning the total benefit income you would receive would be no different if you claimed universal credit as opposed to claiming universal credit as well as contributory GSA. And finally, I think an important um, barrier to the success of contributory GSA at the moment is the strict job search conditionality and expectations that are placed on claimants. Put simply, people that, that claim these payments are expected to look for work and look for or accept any job after four weeks, which again, for many people who have come from a, a, a job that was higher paying or well suited to them, that just doesn't feel worth their time to engage in this system. So what do we propose? We think that after scrapping contributory job seekers allowance, we need to invent a new um, unemployment insurance system. We think that we should learn from the success of Universal Credit, which is a, a digital system that uses RTI earnings data, for example, 
and that that could help make the, the system both um, easy for claimants to, to navigate and, and, uh, and, and manage, but also by integrating it with this wider universal credit system, we could hopefully raise some awareness and knowledge amongst claimants. We also think that it's important to simplify the eligibility criteria and what we propose is that all workers who have been in employment for at least a year would qualify. Thinking first of all about those on middle or higher earnings, that we propose a fairly radical departure from the status quo in that these earnings insurance payments should be based on workers' previous wages. This is in the similar vein of how furlough worked during the pandemic. But what we propose is that workers can receive payments worth 65% of their previous wages up to a cap based on median earnings. Thinking then about lower earners, we think it's important that those who are in receipt of universal credit still benefit from these payments. And so we think that it's important that, that earnings insurance should be treated um, like payments such as maternity pay within the universal credit system and tapered away gradually so that it's worth people's time claiming both. And finally, um, to make sure this works in practice and feels feasible to people, it's important to um, scale back the conditionality <coughs> and job search requirements that are placed on claimants. We think that workers should only be expected to look for or accept jobs of a similar pay or nature as what they did previously. And so to conclude, we think about you know, what, what the country and what, what workers um, might, might think of this reimagined unemployment insurance system. The first thing to say is that, perhaps surprisingly, the cost of this is fairly modest, estimated to be around 0.4 billion in next year's prices. This reflects part of the design decisions we made when, uh, when coming up with this system but also reflects the fact that unemployment in the UK is low by historic and international standards. And of course, while costs would increase if we were to have um, a period of higher unemployment, for example, a recession like we saw in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the cost would still remain modest at just over £1 billion, less than 1% of total working age benefit expenditure. But for workers, we think that this would be a huge improvement from the current system. For lower earners, there would be more support um, as they could benefit from both this earnings-related insurance as well as universal credit. And for middle and higher earners, there would be a stronger safety net since they know that there would be support um, based on their previous level of, of wages rather than the meagre £85 a week on offer at the moment. And so we think that this should be seen as a small but vital part of the toolkit we need if we want to move to both a more dynamic and productive economy and have a society in which workers are better protected and more able to make risks. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Louise. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, we could do earnings insurance uh, of assault in this country uh, for a reasonable price tag uh, on, and build on top of a current system. So that is something for us to uh, kick around, discuss, which we'll be doing with our panellists. But first of all, we're going to hear about how you do it in Denmark, who mm -hmm. you've been uh, taking this sort of approach and some for a very long time. So mm -hmm. really keen to hear. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anna. 
Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me all the way from Copenhagen here to present a chapter that I've co-authored with my colleague Trina Penilla Larsen from University of Copenhagen. And um, we've called it this Flexicurity and the Future of Work, where we compare the, the Danish flexicurity model with the situation in the UK and also discuss what are we looking into in the future with challenges for our labour market and is this still a viable model. So I just have to find check the slides. Yeah, perfect. Um, I'm going to introduce the concept of flexicurity from Denmark for those of you who haven't really heard about it before, don't know the details. A little bit about the similarities and differences between Denmark and the UK and lessons for the future. What can we learn from Danish flexicurity? And I think a lot of things resonates with what Louise was just saying. So that will be a very interesting discussion, I hope. So what is Danish flexicurity? Well, this is this idea that you need a balance of flexibility and security on the labor market for the labor market to be highly efficient and productive. And also that it's possible to unite employers and employees and their organizations in this quest. And the main argument, and I think it's also been demonstrated <laughs> over the last decades, is that if you combine high levels of flexibility with high levels of security, it actually increases your economic growth and competitiveness, and it's a viable route for improving your overall economy. So what is flexicurity? Maybe some of you have seen this figure before. It's called the golden triangle, and it's the three legs in the Danish flexicurity model. So like the UK, there's a very easy access to hiring and firing employees in Denmark. There's a high numerical flexibility, but this is matched with relatively high unemployment benefits. And also with a third leg, which is well-funded active labor market policies. So why is this important? It's because when workers get relatively high unemployment benefits, they are motivated to participate in further training activation schemes to improve their skills and qualifications. And when they re-enter the labor market, they are more qualified before, or they haven't lost at least at least lost their qualifications. So this is an attempt to try to avoid that workers end in the parking lot in long-term unemployment, but keep they, they keep on being attractive for the labor market and have opportunities. So that's why also we say the main outcome of this model is employability security. The security to be employable on the labor market, still be attractive. However, I want to highlight this is not easy. So it's not just about matching and having a positive sum game across employers and employees. We also need to look into the details of the income security programs. And I think Louise did that very beautifully for, for the UK. We need to look if the income security matches the flexibility both in the depth and the scope and the length. So we need to know if the extent of flexibility and security match each other. If we are targeting the same groups, it doesn't help that some groups are flexible and other groups receive the security, that we won't have that effect. Also the length, is this uh, over time matching so this flexibility and security uh, occur at the same time. Just to give you a little bit of input uh, concretely about the Danish unemployment insurance, this is a membership based 
uh, unemployment insurance not covering all, however, it covering 75% uh, of workers, non-standard workers, it's only 55%. It's earnings related. And the max level currently is 2,200 euros uh, per month uh, from the unemployment benefits. However, some unions top off uh, on that because they have they organize high skilled workers and they are not satisfied with 2,200 euros per month. So even some unions include in the union membership that you can have up to 4,000 euros per month when you become unemployed. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy uh, when you compare the low-skilled and high-skilled end of the labor market. There are some eligibility criteria. We can get back to that perhaps later in the discussion, because what I also want to demonstrate to you is how similar the Danish and the UK labor market are when it comes to flexibility. We have very low employment protection legislation in both countries. This is the EPL score that OECD is often comparing. It's very similar. We have very similar employment rates, unemployment rates, job-to-job -job mobilities. So the flexibility of the Danish and the UK labor market are rather similar. So it doesn't seem that the higher income security in the Danish case would jeopardize the flexibility. Also, I would highlight that the contribution to the active labor market policy is higher in the Danish case than in the UK case. So here we have it, the replacement rates, Denmark, the UK, France and Germany, and the UK is the, is the yellow line below where the replacement rates, these are comparable figures from the UK, might differ slightly to Louis' figures, is around 35%, where it's a little less than 60% in Denmark. It's also declining slightly in Denmark, but as you see it here, it's almost double of the UK figure. However, I would highlight one challenge that I think is also important when you're considering reforms of the UK system, because in many countries we see an, in, an increase in non-standard work. These workers find it more difficult to access and be eligible to income insurance. So actually during the last 20 years we've gone from a fourth to a third on the Danish labor market are non-standard workers. This means Numerical flexibility, which has been the core flexibility in the Danish flex security model, is increasingly supplemented by contractual flexibility used by employers to get more flexibility on the labor market. So we also have to consider this dimension that many of our low-wage workers are on flexible contracts. Last year, my colleague Trina and I, who co-authored this chapter, we did a survey among more than 3,000 low-wage workers in Denmark and it turned out that half of them are non-standard workers. They are non-standard contracts. And especially in the private service sectors, this is widespread. Many of them are not part of the unemployment benefit system because it's a voluntary system where you have to sign up. 45% uh, on average are not part of this system. And even if they're part of the system, they struggle to qualify because they cannot accrue enough hours, they don't have guaranteed hours in their contracts, and so on. So even if you are a member as a non-standard worker, it can be a patchy safety net. So just to sum up, there have been huge benefits from the Danish flex security model, especially for standard workers who have fast and efficiently 
they went back into employment if they became unemployed. But we are arguing that for the future, we need to modernize also the flexicurity model and take into um, uh, to reflect on that employers are supplementing hiring and firing with flexible contracts. How can we adjust our income insurance to that, make it easy and accessible for non-standard workers to utilize the income insurance? What kind of activation and further training schemes can these non-standard workers participate in? Because they have this very loose attachment to the workplace. This is really, really difficult. Um, yeah, and um, thank you very much for your attention. And I look forward to the discussion. And I just want to put up uh, some readings, the chapter that I wrote with Trina for your beautiful collection of papers. Uh, but also we did a, a, a report for the Nordic Council of Ministers on all five Nordic countries on non-standard work and, and some of these challenges I highlighted today. And also I did a comparison of the Danish Flex Security model with the US income insurance, which might where I have some more conceptual work that might also be interesting for some of you. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, Never mind anything else, that's just astounding that someone could be that clear speaking about their own social security system and another one in a, in a second language. So uh, <laughs> hugely, I'm in awe of that, frankly. Uh, and just to, I mean, just to sort of amplify one point, I mean, if we put, a, we could have done this, but we didn't, but if we put charts of the UK labour market, unemployment, employment rates, job to job, and Denmark's next to each other, a wager that basically no one in the room would be able to tell the difference. Mm -hmm but one country pays benefits at a dramatically higher level. I mean, dramatically mm -hmm. higher level, which now lots of other things are slightly different too, and this is that to labour market policy and so on. But I mean, that is just quite an interesting sort of you know, observation on itself. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. um, let's move, keep this, there's great questions coming in on Slido. Keep them coming, please. Uh, Kitty, over to you, what do you think? Thank you very much. Um, well, f I just wanted to say at the outset, first of all, just to place this in the kind of broader context of discussion about contributory benefits. So we're focusing here very much on one type of argument for earnings-related benefits, sort of economic mm. argument about the labour market. It's also worth remembering that there are at least two other big arguments. One's a social one about preventing poverty for people when things go wrong for them. Uh, and there's also a political argument. So Corpy and Palm wrote a seminal paper in the 90s mm. Uh, that argued that if you c can keep the middle class on side with your with earnings related benefits, that helps create the political space uh, for higher taxation and allows more generous uh, benefits for for everybody, and that leads to lower poverty. And that empirical finding has been challenged over the years, but there's still um, uh, some evidence for it. So, in principle, there is a win, win, win here, a triple win. Um, uh, what's not to like? Uh, well, there's a lot. No, there's there's a lot to like, and I, I like it. So I, I'm 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 on board with this. Um, but honing in on that labour market argument in particular, I do have some more uh, critical thoughts, I suppose. Um, so I buy into the argument that reducing risks is a way to improve dynamism and you give people security that allows them to take risks. Uh, I think there's a variety of different types of evidence that that support that. Um, so the big question for me is, um, is this the best way to reduce risks for people? I guess, is this the best way to spend money to reduce risks? Um, 
so first there's a question about how much difference this will actually make for whom um, and will it last um, and uh, second if we start from where we are in the UK today are there other ways to use funds to make a difference to security for people who are facing the greatest risk so just to expand on each of those thoughts so first of all how much difference will it make and to whom clearly the design the specific design of rules here is important as well as the kind of overall scale of the benefits um, and we've heard from the Danish system I think it's also informative to look back into our own history with earnings related unemployment benefits uh, specifically we did have such a thing we had the earnings related supplement introduced by a Labour government in 1966 scrapped in 1982 with very little fuss or fanfare. Um, and I need to thank here my PhD supervisor, John Micklewright, mm. who fortunately for me wrote part of his own PhD on this, on this topic. Um, and so from his work, um, it seems that the design of that ERS, um, in particular, the kind of detailed design, the reference income period. So income was averaged across the whole year and that year was actually a previous tax year. So it was, you know, a little bit, that was a problem given inflation of the 70s. It was kind of an, an old level of income, but it was also averaged over a whole year, which meant, of course, that the people who benefited most are the people in most stable um, employment. Um, and that seems like it was a key reason that it was so easy to get rid of it. Um, because quite a lot of people weren't receiving anything, or not very much, uh, through the supplement. So even if they'd had high wages, breaks in employment meant they didn't receive very much. Um, and I think that's also true of this scheme. It's I think it, um, it, it only covers a very it's only going to cover a very small percentage of of the labour uh, force, um, and it's going to cover those who are most in most stable employment. Um, and we know that actually there are significant fluctuations in earned income um, and it's the workers who face greatest job insecurity who face the highest risk. So two points I wanted to draw out from that. One is that the supplement needs to be making a notable difference if it's going to be sustainable or it could, as in the 60s, just be a short-lived phenomenon. And I think uh, Labour introduced it and just said, let's get this in, it's small and, you know, let's just get it in, we'll get the principle in and then we'll develop it and build on it, which I can see happening, you know, again, potentially. Um, but in fact, it was never built on, there's lots of other things going on um, and it was easy to scrap. So I think the low cost and the low numbers of people may carry risks. Maybe it's better to go, to go bigger. Um, secondly, there's just this underlying problem that um, Anne also uh, highlighted, that those facing... Those facing the highest risk, in a way, are those that it's hardest to design this for. That's in in effect. That's the that's the contributory contributory principle at work, um, and and I think I'm right that people who have more unstable histories actually in this are going to be more worse off than they are under the existing system. But I might have read the details wrong on that. Okay, so that brings us uh, to the second question, which is: Are there other ways to address this kind of insecurity and re reduce risks? Um, and when you look kind of more broadly and you look at this country, you look at Denmark and perhaps you look at the US, you can see some really big things that create huge risks for people if they lose their jobs and they vary hugely across countries. So if you look at the US, the big risk is you lose access to your medical insurance. Now we don't, we for now have the NHS, so we don't have to worry about that. But housing, childcare, there are other huge costs that we, that workers face, which I think in Denmark, the labour markets may look similar, but there's all this other stuff happening as well. 
Um, so would, you know, getting, I mean, it's helpful to get 65% of your income rather than, you know, much less than that. Uh, but there are, I think there are other policies that we may be able to give workers sufficient security that would help stimulate a more dynamic economy. And those would be better ways of also reaching those who, who face the greatest risk from employment um, insecurity. And finally, if I have yeah. one minute, yeah, one there's the question of children who don't get many mentions uh, in the report. So children sharply increase risks for families. They place pressure, obviously, on family finances. So it makes it harder for people to save and have something to fall back on. Um, they make it more likely that the adults are going to be in insecure employment because of caring responsibilities. Uh, and of course, the risks for the households, if you've got children, is, the risks of poverty are greater because of the long term consequences. Um, so in some countries, contributory benefits contain an element for children. Um, I think a better plan is an adequate universal child benefit, so a stable income through thick and thin. Um, in Germany, child benefit is 200 euros plus per month, uh, getting close to what we pay as the child element of universal credit. And of course, we only pay that for two children now, so it's another huge um, hole in our system. Um, so if we're only spending 0.4 billion, uh, we might not go very far with universal child benefits. But I think if we want to reduce risks in a way that reaches the most insecure and doesn't damage work incentives, that's um, where I'd go. So I like this, but of course it's just, it's a small piece and it needs to be surrounded by lots of other bits. Brilliant. Lots in there to uh, think about. Thank you so much, Kitty. I'm going to, I can't resist, I'm going to refer to various other reports with published saying we should prioritise children and various different things, so, but you would expect me to say that. Uh, finally, and not least, over to you, Devin. Uh, thank you, uh, Gavin, for having me, uh, inviting me along, and Louise, great report, um, enjoyed reading it. Um, I actually framed my response in a very similar way to Kitty, um, as, I was, as I was thinking through the presentations, and, and probably one other point to mention uh, in Gavin's introduction we do a lot of work with um, individuals that deliver welfare support on the front line, but also my background is in developing universal credit, which there's obviously quite a lot of interaction between this and others. So I want to cover, again, as is tradition, three points uh, uh, in response. I think the first one is around risk, um, how we, what is the best way to reduce risk? And I think there's, a, there's an assumption that's made in this report that I just want to question. Um, the second is, you know, really the comparison between the furlough scheme and what you're proposing, right? We just basically had a two-tier social security system that delivered much of what is described in, in Denmark and the UK. Um, and I think, the, again, the, the, it's striking how similar the, the, the two systems are. And then finally, maybe an alternative approach as well, just to put something forward. So the first one is, you know, how do we improve people's prospects? Um, and I think you definitely do want to reduce risk, but I think it's, it's really important to remember what drives labour market activity is fundamentally growing the economy. Um, and to a, in, a, in a different way, I think the initiative of, the initiative skills, abilities of, of the labour force, you know, the supply side of the labour market is a big driver of that growth. And I think, you know, we don't talk in, you know, I think active labour market policies or more generally the base level of skills uh, in the economy is, is a big driver of, of that. Um, and then going back to risk, you know, how do we reduce risk? Another way of framing it is how do we increase risk appetite? You know, how do we increase that kind of 
um, I have quite a high risk appetite. I've been told uh, in the past. So you know, when you start your own company, I guess there's a the, you know, and and I I had and lost and moved on from many jobs in my twenties. And I think there's an element of that that does drive progression if you've got the confidence and stability to do it. And this talks about stability. I think it's important to talk as well about confidence um, and what gives people that 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 confidence. So I mean, I think that's just something else to factor into your into the the thinking as you take the report forward. Uh, the second point is to is just to think a bit about the furlough scheme, which I think was effectively this, albeit in a pandemic situation when no one could work. I think what the government very quickly realised, I think it was introduced for two reasons. One is just the ease of getting money out to people, and, and I think the government would say that was the main driver. But I think there's a second point is getting onto UC was hard and not suitable for lots of people because the amount of support you got on UC was far too little um, and too many people were ineligible for it to be acceptable when you realise that actually this unemployment insurance needs to be there for a much larger group of people. Um, and I think it worked incredibly well. You know, the, the, the biggest downside is you did create a two-tier social security system. Um, and I think that's a risk in the proposals that you put forward here today is, you know, when universal credit was introduced, I think trying to bring or reduce the distinction between people who are out of work and people who are in work to see them as people was certainly one of its aims. I think we probably went for that a little bit naively. People do seem to want to see themselves as two different groups from time to time. And, uh, uh, and but I still don't think it's, you know, you need to be wary of going, taking a step backwards um, there. Um, and then, you know, as, and I just want to kind of, Anwar's in the audience, I just want to recognise some of the work Bright Blue have done on uh, he did and, and brightly did on, on this kind of unemployment insurance model. And I said a very similar thing, you know, we've got the furlough scheme, a time limited furlough model would, would work quite well, um, potentially, if that was the group you wanted to target. I think the final point is partly on priorities, right? So this, this comes from not so much from the design of UC, although I'll come back to that, is, is just the experience of those on the front line, um, is where do you want to prioritise? And again, mirroring some of uh, Kitty's points, but making them a bit more viscerally is you know, if you've got 0.4 billion pounds to spend on social security, I'd probably spend it in plugging the holes that we've already created um, for groups that depend upon it right now. So I'd certainly focus on support for the lowest income. And actually this, this group of non-standard workers were also a group that missed out during the pandemic. You know, you had a number of people with no recourse to public funds, um, other groups of individuals who, were, who felt very hard done by, so there's kind of an unfairness element, but also were left with very little to get by on. I'm not 100% sure how many of those got by on it, apart from like, you know, their own social networks. Um, yeah, there's a couple of technical points. I think, but going back to your recommendations, so scrapping contributory JSA, yes, please do that. You know, I think, I think it doesn't achieve very much. And there was a report from SAC just recently in the last couple of months on, on that. And I thought it was, uh, it drew one point, you know, they didn't want to roll it into UC or scrap it entirely because of some risk of entitlement overseas and they didn't want to, and it was just a really not very good reason, I thought. It just doesn't achieve very much for many people. Um, people who, who do get it do often ask themselves, what was the point? I mean, that's the most typical response. And actually, if you just had universal credit. But a lot of people who are eligible for contributory JSA can't get UC. And so I'm going to propose an alternative to consider alongside the proposals that are in the report. So the first one is, you know, um, scrap the savings limit in UC and make it time limited. All of a sudden that does a lot of what you're describing. 
Um, and then the other part that's missing, of course, is the um, increase, the, increasing the standard allowance to a level whereby it's it's a little bit more generous. Um, well, you know, it could be quite a bit more generous, uh, depending on kind of where you sit. But I, I think you know, rather than introducing a second tier unemployment, you know, two tier system with an employment insurance, I think UC goes quite far to achieving a lot of those goals, but for the savings limit. Um, and you could create a more generous version of the standard allowance that was time limited, which I think would achieve many of these goals. Again, having just, this is a very much a reactive response, so <laughs> I might want to think about it some more, but those are certainly some things hopefully to think about and discuss. Great, thank you so much, Devin. And I, and I think, I mean, it, we'll come back to this, I know, but I think the basic, you know, there's lots of choices and you could just say, no, let's not have any earnings relation. Let's just try and improve in various ways the status quo and make it a bit more generous. It's perfectly, lots of people say that. That's a perfectly valid uh, line of thought, and um, it's got its own challenges, I think, in lots of them. But it's, a, but you know, it's a, it's a good discussion to have. So let's let's come back to that. But first of all, let us put up. I believe we've got a poll we can show, I think, which is going to speak to. If we can get it up. It is there. It's going to basically speak to some of the points you made, actually, Devin, in a way. So what is the barrier to people? to you uh, moving jobs if you work at the Resolution Foundation please don't take part in this we don't want you moving jobs <laughs> but to the rest of you um, because obviously it's not just about a fear of income loss there's lots of other things going on right um, and so partly it is just if I move jobs I'll, hurt, I, well, I'll lose my employment rights because I don't get them from day one partly it's I've got I can have established pattern of work with my employer do I just give that up and am I at the back of the queue kind of thing if I move partly it is what if it doesn't what if it goes wrong and I'm, and I'm left to to cope on uh, universal credit and I can't because that's a massive income shock and part is it's just a massive hassle uh, find, looking and finding and shifting work and um, I haven't got the headspace the time of my life to do that and the small systems are rubbish um, uh, and you can't say all of the above. Uh, uh, so have a look at that because it's kind of relevant, I think. I mean, we're not, the answer is it is to probably to a degree all of the above, but uh, let's see where you come down and we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, right, let's get into this a bit more. So we've got some questions up here, but we've also got some good ones I want to, um, to draw upon, uh, which are online and we'll, and we'll come to the room as well. I want to start though just by just sort of teasing out the argument a bit about the kind of, do we think that income support and a different approach to income support could lead to better job outcomes, better labour market outcomes? Or do we just sort of basically not believe that and we think that income insurance isn't a big part of the labour market performance bit of the jigsaw? And I think, Anna, you've been, from where you come from, I think it's fair to say that most people think it is a big part of the system. It's not the only thing, there's lots of other things going on. Flex security's got different dimensions, but income support is a central one mm -hmm. and it improves, it helps people improve job search and job choice, which has a labour productivity impact. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a reasonable...? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there any, I mean, first of all, I suppose for you is, how contentious is that? I mean, is that, that's what you think and that's what the system looks like. How contentious is that? Are there other views? People say, actually, we could have a better labour market if we did it completely differently. Yeah, yeah. So I think an, an, an important piece of information is this also that uh, the Danish labour market is highly organised. So many workers are in unions and many employers are in employers' organisations. Yeah. And I mean, uh, three-fourths of uh, the Danish labour market are covered by sector-level collective agreements. So it's a very coordinated, highly organised labour market. 
And the flexicurity model is part of the social compromise between the employers' organizations and the unions. So none of them want to change it because the employers' organizations, they fear they will lose this easy access to hiring and firing in the companies. And the unions, they fear to lose the income security coming from the unemployment benefits. So it's part of the larger social compromise yep. among all these organizations, and they are all in favor for it. So where do we see some dilemmas and, and, and criticisms? That's what you're asking. So in, in the higher end of the labor market, among the high skilled, of course, they don't think that 2,200 euros per month is adequate because they come from double or triple wages. So here we have some criticisms because many of these workers leave the unemployment benefit system. They don't want to pay into it because they don't really think it's sufficient. Some of these unions, in order to keep their members, they start doing these wage insurance systems on top of the unemployment benefit yep. system to keep them in the unions. So at that end of the labor market, we have one challenge. We also have a challenge at the very bottom of the labor market, and that's what I was addressing with the non-standard low-wage workers, because they find it difficult to, even if they're part of the unemployment benefit system, to use it when they become unemployed, especially because what's sneaking into contracts today is that you don't have any guaranteed hours. Yeah. So zero-hour contractors and so on is becoming more and more widespread, I know also in the UK and Ireland. And the problem is, Many of our uh, benefits, not just unemployment benefits, actually also welfare benefits, are tied to a weekly number of hours in your contract. So you should have like 20 or 25 hours written in your contract. So many of the most insecure workers, they, they risk falling out of these systems, even if they're members. Because of the hours conditions. Yeah, because of the hours conditions. So that's why I'm also highlighting this aspect of non-standard work. I think there's a more fundamental dilemma, which has also been a dilemma with the flexicurity model. Do we want to have an insider model? Do we want to use it to increase the group of insiders in our labor market? Or do we really want to target some of the most vulnerable groups in our labor market? I think that's, and also listening to your comments and to Louise's presentation, I think that's one of the basic dilemmas. Do we want to use the money to help those who are most vulnerable or insecure? Or do we want to increase the group of insiders to create stability in our labor market? I think that's a dilemma, that's an also in Denmark. It's an eternal dilemma, but, <laughs> but your country has kind of come down on one, largely on one side of it. I have to, I'm going to move on to the other speakers in a minute, but I can't resist asking you this. Just imagine a political party turns up in Denmark, I mean, maybe there is one for all I know, and it says the big answer to improving our labor market performance is that we're going to scrap the existing approach and we're going to say what you can get, the basic element of unemployment insurance from now on is going to be 100 euros a week. And you have to take the first job that comes, even if it's a completely different job to the one that you lost. Yeah, so this what, work what, first strategy. What, yeah. would happen, like, what would be the reaction of that? Was there, this is the kind of future of our labour market? I, I, doubt, nope. I, I doubt anybody would do that. Is anyone saying that? I don't think anybody would say something no. directly like, even the right-wing parties, I mean, their voters are from the working class. I, I don't think they would say that. that. Fly. And the others, no, I don't think so. Maybe some very marginal, very uh, particular uh, persons would do it, but established political parties, no. Okay, great. Um, let's keep going. And I, um, 
I want to sort of turn Kitty and Devon and, and, and Louise as well. Just on this, um, the labour market side of things, and we'll come on to sort of design of schemes and different choices and so on in a minute, but you know, there's an argument, and uh, there was a really good piece in the FT this week by Sarah O'Connor who writes on this stuff, which kind of captured, crystallised it in a way. There's an argument, so there's a whole bunch of people who think, who just basically believe that we've got a really dynamic, fast-moving labour market, and that's just sort of eternally true in the UK, because that's our, that's our approach. There's actually a, quite a lot of data which, said, which shows we've had quite a big decline in job-to-job moves. That's particularly pronounced in certain parts of the labour market. And the, this piece in the FT I'm talking about was describing what it calls a kind of gummed-up labour market at the bottom end, where basically there's a lot of anxiety, <coughs> stroke fear, stroke concern, if you're in work, about moving to a different job. Not because it's impossible to find a job, because there's, we've got quite, you know, we're in high employment society in lots of ways, but because there'll be aspects of what you've got that you'd fear that you would lose, which kind of speaks to the poll. Mm-hmm. Um, either that you just formally lose your employment rights, but quite often it's not that. It's like, I, I get these shifts because I've been you know, here for a while and I know the person who, who sort of allocates the rotor or whatever, and if I move somewhere else, I'll be back in the queue and that won't let me do the other things in life, my life that I have to do, mm-hmm. etc. But there's different versions of that. Um, now, earnings insurance doesn't solve all that. It, it, a, a lot of things have to come together to solve that, clearly, and that's why this is only one bit of the jigsaw. But f- just before we get on to the kind of solution, I mean, how much do you recognise... Where are you on that? Or is that just a, or is that overstated, or is that a real description of the kind of lower end of the labour market and, and how people feel about job mobility within it? I mean, as you put the poll up, I immediately thought what stopped my parents from moving jobs. Yep. Kids, <laughs> one you know, income security, <laughs> to uh, flexibility around kids and having work work where you could do that uh, and manage that between the two of you. And again, the less, I mean, that's a, model, that, you know, that's a reasonably secure existence as well. So I think the less security you have around that, the harder it becomes. So I do think that kind of point around, my mum was a home care worker, so she had all kinds of weird and wonderful shift patterns that if that would make her move much more than an extra 50p an hour, I think. Um, so you need to be slightly more aware of um, your, your right to be aware of these broader... The, the kind of employment p- practice and security over hours, etc., is important. The, yes. the relationship side of it, you know, how you feel about your employer and, and those things, I think, matter quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Th- I mean, this is going to take us slightly away from, but but there's so many other. There are. You think about universal credit. Yeah, the, there are huge risks when you when you talk to people. They don't. Yeah, if you if you end up having to, if it doesn't work out and you need to make another claim, you've got a five week wait. I mean, that's a yep. hu- that's a that's huge a risk. Uh, risk. So yeah, I think, I think it's I think it's certainly something people need to take into account, whether moving jobs or even entering jobs from from no job yeah. at all. And do you worry, so on the labour market side of things, you know, we worry quite a lot about the quality of bad matches. And basically people could be in, I mean, obviously we want to improve human capital and so on, but even for the given sort of state of human capital on the lower the labour market, we, it's, it feels to us that we could have a better allocation of work in this country, as well as more people being attracted into work, um, and that, that we haven't got that quite right. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is a significant part, I mean, there's... You know, just, that is one, one aspect of our underperformance that we could improve upon. Does that ring true or do you think that's an overstated concern? No, I think that's true. I think it was interesting you were talking about what's the evidence that this doing this would lead people to lead to better job matches. Yep. And in a way, we've kind of been experimenting with the opposite, haven't we? We've gone into having really harsh, very low benefits, really harsh sanctions. Yep. 
And the evidence on that, there's lots of evidence, and the, and the evidence is very clear that that, has, that doesn't, in, in the short term, it, it leads to more people entering jobs more quickly. But in the longer term, the outcomes for those people are not good. The job matches are not good. They're more li there's more likely to be turnover. Uh, there's less job progression uh, and less wages, wage earnings progression. So I suppose if you look at it from that side, it suggests You're that... You, you think you know we, what doesn't work, if you like. Yeah, we, yeah, we know that doesn't work. Yeah. And also, I think it's helpful to perhaps frame the problem in a slightly different way, which is, you know, we're talking about really helping a, a middle group, an insider group, mm -hmm. I think, with this kind of model. Another way of looking at the problem is, where is the biggest loss potential in the economy? Mm -hmm. And I think there are different ways of answering that question. You can be purely economic. Uh, and in one sense, helping a lawyer get a better job as a lawyer might triple their salary and that might be worth more. But actually, I think there's, it's much deeper than that. There are a lot more people at the lower end. Um, and I think there's a fundamentally kind of social justice view of what that loss potential is. And I think, I think you know, helping, I guess my instinctual response is I think helping this group of people, this insider group is less necessary um, in that I think if you leave, if, if people were to lose their job and get slightly higher benefits for a bit, would they get another job in three months, whether or not you gave them those extra benefits? And the answer is yes, they would. There's a slight risk of bad matching, but... Not as much as you, that's not, a big risk. not as much as what's happening at the lower end, where you literally can't take that first step into work because you're stressed out about a whole host of things. Yeah. Well, well, let's come on to the political economy, inclusivity yeah. of the kind of system and the pros and cons of that. Uh, Louise, do you want to kind of come in on this sort of job match labour market performance? I mean, you touched on it on your slide, but it was we didn't give you much time. So just unpack that a bit. How you see it? Yeah, and exactly. And I think. Um, I think Kitty summarised it quite quite well that it's clear that our kind of current approach of giving people very little time or space to, to look for the right job just clearly isn't isn't working. And when we look internationally, there is um, pretty clear evidence that by paying people more generous unemployment insurance for a slightly longer time does. And I think we should be aware of the trade-offs. It's likely that people will be unemployed for longer, but that that is a we should see that basically as a, a good thing. It's giving people the, the time it needs to look for a job that's right for them. And I think it kind of reflects something that we don't often think about, but just this idea that searching for a job is actually quite hard. It, it takes a lot of time and effort and, and we should give people the resources they, they need to do so. Um, and I think the final point is just, we, in the discussion we framed it a little bit as in, you know, we're giving higher earners the time and resources it needs to find another higher earning job. But I think we thought quite carefully in, in our scheme, we, we do propose that these sort of more um, uh, or sort of less stringent conditionality job search requirements would apply to those on universal credit, those lower earners too. So the idea is that someone who maybe was made unemployed from a lower earning job also has these three months to, to search for a job that's right for them. And as Gavin said, it fits into a broader scheme of, of policy changes where hopefully they'd be able to you know access training and education and such as well it's worth saying sorry under you see the impact of a good match is much greater than uh, a bad match because the in work you even if you're getting in work you see the amount of uc you get would fall by more because you're in a better job higher paying you're going to stay in it for longer and actually when you factor in all of those things it's much better than in a than kind of fast turnaround yeah, uh, jobs. Right. I want to. We, we've had um, loads of questions mm -hmm. on coming from different sides, but on, on the same sort of theme, which Kitty you sort of touched on, which is 
would this sort of approach either be a really good thing, in, I'm going to use this phrase in terms of kind of political economy, of, of bringing more pe- giving more people a stake, if you like, in a social security system that, frankly, many of them would think offers them very little at the moment, uh, mid- many middle earners, um, and that, that, that's a positive thing, or does it risk, like, two-tierism kind of delegitimizing in some sense the existing means-tested, more means-tested approach. Um, and we've got people saying, I've got, I'm not going to read them all out, but we've got a number of people quite strongly saying this would be a good thing because we, need to, we, we desperately need to bring more people in. This is a risky thing because this sounds much more attractive than kind of means-tested universal credit and um, th- there's a risk inherent in that. And then there's other people actually saying, isn't this conversation about where the risk of two-tier and inclusivity a bit overdone because unemployment insurance is effectively insurance, universal credit is a safety net, they complement, but they're slightly different things, and there's space for both. Um, I didn't write that, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> someone else has said that. So you, I, I, you kind of mentioned that this is long. This is an old debate. This is as old as the hills, really, in sort of social security policies. So I, I know that, but I want to kind of push you a bit on how do you see it in Britain in the 2020s, and how attractive could whether it's this precise scheme or something, your number, you know, your own tweak on it. What role do you think it could play in, in, in a kind of tri- a slightly more inclusive social social security system? Yeah, I really think we we uh, we've yeah we've got we've created a system where an awful lot of people really think partly because of the rhetoric we use as well as the system itself that yeah. this is not for them that this is for you know well, lots of people don't play lots of people don't play mm. yeah that's right mm. it's for it's this is for skivers and you know this is for not not for me so I I'm very much and I'm very convinced by that this is and it's interesting actually to hear Anna that even in Denmark there's an issue that it's not quite generous enough so I mean it needs to be more. so even in Denmark there are people who are feeling like you know I'm not I don't have a strong enough stake in this but yeah so I'm very convinced that we we should be moving towards uh, a system that where we all very clearly have a stake um, and that that involves um, uh, this sort of earnings-related uh, system. I don't think that there's a trade-off. I think you need both. I mean, I, there is a trade-off, clearly, in terms of funds. Money, so I'll come yes. back to that. Uh, I don't think... I think you need both. You have to have... Every every so- earnings-related... Every social insurance system has, has a, a social assistance system effectively sitting underneath it because there are going to be people that, that fall through. So I think you, you can and need to have both. Um, I do think there's... Obviously, there's a problem with money... And I think that there's a problem, as I said before, in doing this on a small scale. Like it, it needs to be big for people to feel that they've got a stake. Um, and so there is a worry that this is, yeah, this is too small. And just on that, just to be clear, what, what is bigness in your view? Is bigness making it much easier to be included? Is bigness the amount of money you get, or is bigness the duration? And you can't say everything. Um, okay, if I have to choose. I would say it's about it's both about including it's about including lots of people and making it worth their while. So I've I've chosen You've two chosen out of two. three. You've chosen two. I mean, two. yeah. Well, otherwise it's not going to. If if not enough people feel yeah. they have a part in it, it will just be the first thing to get cut, and no one will really notice. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm conscious of time, and we've we've got a lot. I, I I feel like as a public service to a loyal audience, we need to answer some of these particular questions on asking Louise. So I'm going to just there's a, a few 
Um, but so a few people have said, effectively, like it, three months is just too short, get real, it's, it's got to be longer. And why have you gone for three months? Which is, and let's be honest, we've kicked this around internally, back and forth. And we've got, you know, and we all think there's, there's different approaches to that. So a bit, you definitely want to hear you on that conundrum, if you like, of the duration. Someone is saying, this sounds interesting, but walk me through what this means for me on universal credit and what do I lose and what do I gain if, I, if I'm claiming your earnings related bit. So I think, uh, and then someone else, uh, Paul has said basically lots of people who currently claim JS, contributory JSA are construction workers, if you look at the data. Um, would they, like basically, what would they get from your approach they don't currently get from, from contributory JSA? Uh, there are lots of others, but I'm going to just do a really brief um, run through those, and then we'll, we'll, if we've got any questions in the room, we'll take them. Yeah, all good questions, and I think, as Gavin said, definitely worth being transparent that you know these are all hard choices, and I think we're not seeing our scheme as set in stone. There's definitely room for you know reasonable people to disagree about each of these parameters. Um, starting with duration. Um, I guess our broad thinking about starting with a relatively short three-month payment was that you know this is quite a big departure from the status quo and it makes sense to to be cautious when moving to this more generous earnings related payment um, I guess the two other considerations one was you know cost as I think we've talked about we have to be realistic that we're in the situation where we are where any spending on social security you know is is a kind of hard-fought cash so that was one reason and the other is just when thinking about these labour market um, uh, consequences that there definitely is uh, you know there are trade-offs involved you want to give people enough time to search for the right job but the risk is if you pay for for too long that then workers remain unemployed for a uh, you know an unbeneficial length of time and their skills to depreciate for example um, so those were all considerations, but we were definitely explicit in the paper that this three-month duration is something that should be seen as being flexible. So, for example, if we were to be in a downturn where unemployment was high and it was just seen as unreasonable to expect people to find jobs in three months, then certainly we propose that this should be um, easy to, to flex. So that, for example, if we had another financial crisis type recession, we wouldn't have to be inventing something from scratch. We could extend the duration to six or nine months. Um, quickly around universal credit, um, in simple terms, we think that this payment should be treated like things like maternity pay or other earnings replacements are treated, in that you, your, your payment of un unemployment insurance is tapered away gradually. The rate of that, that, that happens at the moment is 55%. So it means that there's a financial benefit that people would receive their kind of current universal credit payment, which might include an amount for rent, amount for um, you know for, for children, and then they would receive this extra uh, bit of earnings insurance on top. Um, and finally, I think the question about kind of you know some kind of existing contributory JSA claimants, what would the change look like? Um, in general, for people that have had, you know, previous work, previous earnings, this would mean a more generous payment since it would be based on 65% of their previous wages. Of course, with any benefit kind of policy change, there will be some winners or losers or some people that might not qualify for contributory JSA because they might not meet the national insurance contribution thresholds who may actually fall into eligibility for our scheme. 
On the other hand, there might be some people who, who kind of meet the, the criteria um, at the moment but might not qualify under our scheme. But I think our, our view is the kind of current system is so small, there's only 25,000 claimants that, um, you know, these the numbers of people um, losing out would be quite small. Okay, thank you, Louise. Um, I'm going to come back to the panel for final comments in a minute. I'm going to come to the audience if, if anyone has got the yeah, okay so we're going to take a couple of words but I've, I've got one more question i'm going to ask anna which is someone has asked about language and people are sort of saying basically unemployment insurance sounds really dull and, and sort of not very interesting danish fle you know, flex security connects income insurance to something which sounds good um so I, do people talk about we talk about flex security because we're geeky okay. people who are interested do people yeah. in denmark really talk about it or is that just people like us well, uh, I mean, everyday people, or it's just decision makers, and so I mean, in in among social partners, uh, unions, employee associations, government, politicians, there there is a conversation. Sure. I mean, everyday people, they would not have used that concept, but they would talk about unemployment benefits and 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 job laws and things like that, and 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 the system that we have. But I think it's it's a more uh, concept for decision makers and and yeah. and academics and and so on. But there is a consciousness in Denmark about the security we have if we lose our job, also among uh, ordinary people, definitely. Definitely, great. Yeah. Thank you. We're just gonna can we have quick fire questions and then we're gonna come back to the panel, come back to the poll. So tell us who you are, just briefly. Uh, John Bryant, I'm fully retired, so this is um, an academic issue for me rather than uh, a real one. Um, um, we didn't hear, I don't think, what the actual cost to the worker is for contributing to this system. We have a national insurance scheme here. Is it something similar? And what's the percentage rate it, of the In Denmark? In Denmark. Okay, yeah, let's just take a, any other questions. This gentleman here. Hello, uh, Anwar, I'm from the Nigel Foundation. Um, I think my main question is actually just to honour one of the unique things about the Danish system is that it is a voluntary insurance mm. scheme. And that when we did some work on, on this, that was one of the big question marks because we proposed a voluntary setup also, but there were a lot of questions about risk, risk effectively. So I just want a bit of a reflection on why a voluntary scheme works in Denmark. Okay, and then the last, this gentleman here, last question. Thanks. Uh, Phil Agulnik from Entitled Two. Um, it's a bit of a big topic for a small question, but what, what, it, it picks up on Kitty's point about the rather brief scheme from the 60s to the early 80s, and SERPs was yeah. a much bigger, equally ill-fated earnings-related scheme. So what, what makes you think that this scheme is going to be any different from the previous history, which goes all the way back to beverage, about the, the failure to have sure. any form of earnings relation? Big question to end on. Um, okay, can we bring the poll up just so we can quickly see what you all think about what did you tell us about risk and moving job? I can't see. What did you say? Equal. So income losses, yeah, inertia. I mean, inertia is, let's face it, in life always a, a factor. Um, interesting that uh, so low on insecure employment rights. I wonder whether that is reflecting our audience. Uh, as much as anything. But that is interesting. Income losses are right up there, jointly with inertia. Um, okay, we're going to come back to the panel. Um, Anna, there's a few questions for you particularly. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and then we'll just have a kind of a minute each uh, before we close. So let's start with you, Anna. Okay, so thank you very much for the questions. So uh, I'm going to start with the volunteer and then with the contributions. So the reason why it's voluntary is it's been tied to the union movement and we have what we call a Ghent system in Denmark, like we also have in Belgium. So it's administered in collaboration with the union. So as it's also voluntary to be a member of the union, it's also voluntary to be a member of the unemployment benefit system. So, for instance, I would pay uh, in the academic uh, union and uh, unemployment insurance, I would pay around 200 euro for the union every quarter and 200 euro every quarter for the unemployment benefit system. That gives you a picture of how much I would pay uh, to be part of that. So you can choose to be part of both or one, but because there is this collaboration, there's a tendency that more people join both. There's kind of this spillover effect because the union movement is involved also with the unemployment insurance. I hope that gives you a picture of, of what, how it works. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Um, Kitty, and if you, if you feel able, do you want to just like have a nod at Phil Agulik's question about like basically... Why would it be any Why would it be any different as the earnings insurance sort of doomed in Britain or was it, or was that just a particular bit of historical contingency, I guess? No, the ship has sailed, I'm afraid. The okay. ship has sailed. Yeah. I do. I mean, yeah. I think. I think maybe the ship. Well, I think. It, I think it, to be different, it has to be big and affect include enough people, and that means that we need to be prepared to pay for it. And given the next ten years and all the other things all that we need to be prepared to pay for, I think there are. Yeah, there are risks. But maybe it's what you know. This is so maybe a little tiny. Maybe get maybe it's worth another go, just getting something cheap and getting the principal back on the books and seeing where it goes. But yeah, I, I'd like to see it, but I, I I think there are concerns about that. We do have stats, you know. SMP does have some is a blend of earnings related and flat rate too. Yes, that's so. Yeah. It's not like it yeah, doesn't it, exist. No. And no, one, and no one talks about it. And no one says, why on earth do we have that? It's literally, I mean, that's just not a conversation. I don't think anyone would say. I mean, people really like it. The principle, people so, love it. Something for So something. anyway, it's just, so we, I don't think we, that's we, never, we never mention it. It exists. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's okay. true. Um, Devin, any other final reflections? Yeah, I mean, there was a question that you do have unemployment insurance. You can take out income protection insurance yep. if, if you want to. I, I think many people don't and they rely on their company to do it, which yep. would be very similar to the model that you described in Denmark. But I think the market is speaking in terms of how important it is to people, right, in terms of the take-up of that scheme. I mean, I, I really think my reflections on it mainly are if you scrap the savings limit and you see time limit, a boost in the standard allowance, you get very similar effects, I think, to what you've described. But you also have far more people taking and staying on UC, which supplements your income when you move back into work too um, without having to create this new scheme or, or, or in my view what would start to feel more like a two-tier system. Thank you so much Devon uh, and last words to you Louise. Yeah I mean I think um, you know all good questions from uh, from the audience and I think certainly right to think back in our history and think what can we um, what can, what can we learn from that? I think our our argument is definitely that we this isn't this isn't easy and we don't have all the answers, but that there's good reason to move in this direction, both to try and you know protect protect workers who rely on very low and generous rates of benefits at the moment, and to try and boost our labour market and productivity in the years ahead. So I think moving in this direction, be it this exact approach or something 
something different, but I think kind of, uh, you know, something, there's definitely room for, room for change and room for improvement. Thank you, uh, Louise. Um, so thank you to my panel. Really, I thought everyone had brilliant stuff to say, so it was a great panel, uh, um, particularly for, to you, Anna, for travelling all the way over. Thanks to the audience. Thank, lots of brilliant, um, and apologies, I didn't do justice to all the questions, uh, some really fascinating questions. We do, let me just say, I guess one of the luxuries, indulgences, opportunities of doing a 2030 and beyond project is that you can ask big questions about the system, and <laughs> in, including challenging ones and shake things up rather than just think, can we just do this thing next year uh, un, within current budgets? So we are taking that bigger, longer term perspective, I guess. And we have lots more coming up. So just let me just finally plug, we have next week, we are publishing a paper on dynamism in the British economy, but both for workers and sectors and firms which will be a great report. So we're publishing that on Monday. We've got an event here, I believe. And then we have uh, Danny Roderick, who is part of this process, uh, giving a lecture here on what we can learn from Bidenomics and America, uh, what that means for the UK. And that's on Wednesday, and you'll all be welcome at that too. So uh, please do join us as we approach the final furlong of this process. Uh, thanks to all of you, uh, and we'll hopefully see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.